So no pressing announcements other than we'll be gone for uh, four days with Bob and I, driving up and bound and back. So keep that in prayer and continue prayer for one another as you travel as well, because um, I know most accidents, at least I've always read somewhere, so it must be true, within a five-mile radius of your house or something like that. Probably because that's where you do most of your driving anyways, right? Uh, the odds are. So I guess the odds are in favor of going, <laughs> going to Volga. <laughs> If I'm driving. <laughs> so, uh, with no further ado, we have the call to worship. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Let's bow our hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. Let's stand and let us sing hymn 542, 542.
Amen. Let us pray. This evening, God Almighty, we ask that your Spirit would be with us, that we would focus upon you and put aside distractions, God, and to hear your word and sing praises before you, thankful in our hearts for the glorious things that you continue to provide and do for us, especially for the preserving of our soul unto the day of full redemption. We pray these things in your name alone. Amen. You may be seated. Hymn 230, 230.
May your name ever be blessed, Lord Almighty. May it ever be blessed in our lives, God, day by day, hour by hour, as we are committed to following you and submitting to your will in our lives. Help us, our God, to that end, to continue to do the things that we are called to do, not to be distracted, Lord, not to be discouraged, but to be encouraged to know that you are with us and guiding us in all things for your glory and for our good. We ask and pray in particular, God, that you would be with uh, our church in America, our churches across this nation of ours, to protect them, both spiritually and bodily, Lord. Protect them both in various and sundry ways, uh, politically and socially, with respect to their reputation, God, uh, that they would be protected, uh, Lord, uh, from those who wish to do them harm because they are considered right or wrong or indifferent matters not, Lord, uh, to be enemies and dangerous and radicals. Help them, we pray, to do the right thing, to stand firm and not to uh, buckle under and to the pressures upon the churches in this nation, to water down your truth, to lie, to prevaricate, and all these other ways, Lord, in which uh, there is fear and trembling before men instead of before God. Help our churches, help your churches, God, we pray, to be firm and to be loving, certainly, Lord, towards their own. To speak the truth clearly, God, uh, be with them, we pray, in the leadership of those churches to follow your word. And that the members therein uh, would expect that from their pastors, God, and not accept anything less, that they would help their churches and their pastors, God, to be pure and to follow your ways and your word. And again, to be wise, God, and to protect themselves and watch over and help one another, Lord, especially uh, in this trying, trying times, God, and especially with respect to their soul and the truth of your word and correct doctrine. Help them, we pray, and not only them, God, we pray for our sister churches here in the Dakotas, that you would help them grow and multiply both spiritually and numerically, uh, that the members would support the pastors and the leadership of the church, and they in turn, God, would protect and defend their members and their brothers and sisters in Christ, God, from the evils of this world and the lies from the devil, and that the churches, God, would grow and towards love towards one another and unto one another between the churches, God, and that we would not live in isolation, but we would practice what we believe on paper, God, to be a connected church, to be Presbyterians, God, and not to be independents. And so, Lord, may you work in our feeble efforts to that end, not only our church, but again, our sister churches, Lord, and to be with them and help them. Help their pastors not be discouraged in their duties and responsibilities before you, but to take courage and to do the right thing regardless, and give them wisdom and giving counseling and advice and help for their members uh, and any of the leadership involved in these things as well, God. And be with the deacons that they would have uh, good connections and insights to take care of the finances before them and to evaluate case by case what is needed and what is not needed, Lord. And again, to have the courage to do the right thing, even if people disagree with them. Help our churches, we pray, Lord, in the various and sundry matters that we deal with outside of Presbyterian meetings proper, as all churches must be dealing with. We ask God for our work situation, and pray, Lord, for better pay for those who are not being paid enough. As we heard this morning, Lord, where apparently some companies um, are playing hardball and uh, wishing to pay even less. God, but want more out of their workers, it seems. And so, God, we pray these things would change, whatever the difficulty may be, lazy workers, uh, greedy bosses, a combination of both, it seems, Lord, and uh, would not affect us in particular, that is, your members and your people, God, in these churches. Certainly we pray for our neighbors. It wouldn't affect them either, Lord. Uh, but we ask especially for our brothers and sisters in the Lord and help them with better hours and better co-workers who can come along and help them do what they need to do. Give us wisdom, Lord, in our work situations and all the different ways that can be difficult for us and perhaps we are difficult for them. 
and that we would be humble, and that we would be thankful, God, for what indeed what we do have, at the same time to be wise with what you have given us and our abilities and what we can do perhaps in your providence to get something better, to help our family, to help our church, Lord, and not for our own sake only. And to that end, God, we ask that we would work hard as unto the Lord, that we would do our duty, although to men, but ultimately to you and our jobs and respective responsibilities outside of uh, a proper job in which we get paid per hour or per uh, salary, God, whatever responsibility we have at school, in our neighborhood, God, our work that we are called to do, may we do it again unto you and do it well. We pray, Lord God Almighty, that we as your people would continue to meditate upon your goodness towards us and your greatness, the wonders of who you are, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who from eternity past arranged all things and applied it through the power of the Holy Spirit, the work accomplished on the cross of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We pray to this end, God, that your name may be magnified this evening and throughout this week. In your name alone, amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. Let us rise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. We magnify your name again, God Almighty, and thankful, so thankful for the many blessings you bestowed upon us, and that we are able, therefore, even from a storehouse that is not as blessed as it was before, it matters not, God. We wish to give to the work of the kingdom, and we pray, Lord, that it would indeed be used mightily, especially for your glorious namesake to be magnified across the world. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Let us turn to Psalm 37. I'm going to break this into a few sermons because there's so much stuff in here, not just simply because it's long. You can have long psalms that have a fair amount of repetition in terms of themes to some extent, and so you can cluster in a sermon these things together. But this has a lot of depth to it, partly because, as we will see, it is more like a Proverbs There are proverbial psalms, for lack of a better word, that's my word, uh, instructional psalms in proverb-like format. And that's what we have here. Let us listen attentively to the Word of God, Psalm 37, verses 1 through 11. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord and trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in the way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. 
For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait in the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Let us pray. With these words, God, may we listen if we are struggling with these things, especially, it seems, in our lifetime with the various and sundry wickedness, gross inequities that we're seeing multiplying over the years. That we would not fret to the level of envy, fret, God Almighty, uh, to the level of anger and malcontent in our hearts and our lives. Rather, Lord, to trust and wait upon you, for you will judge the wicked and reward the righteous. In your name we pray. Amen. There are many things, I'm sure, if we were to list them out, that weigh upon our minds when we read this psalm of things that we look at and go, yeah, that's a good reason to fret. I know it's not right, but I can see myself fretting with all the lying politicians, the corrupt businesses, mobs, riots, diseases, and shutdowns, just to name a few. Then there's the long-standing injustices of wicked leaders and laymen who literally get away with murder. They steal, they cheat, they rob, some in overt ways, but the worst do so in covert ways, like the Ponzi scheme, that we, if you remember a number of years ago, it wasn't that obvious, in clever ways. There are lies and lies and apparently more lies by the mainstream media and other people as well. And that was before they covered up for a coup. You see this, you've witnessed it for years and even decades, the injustices and prosperity of the wicked. They get away with it and prosper. They get promotions. They get reelected. It's enough to drive a godly man to anger or despair sometimes if we were to sit there and watch too much of it. The double standards are appalling, as we saw yet again last week and before, that the powers that be, what I call the elites, I don't mean just politicians, people with power and ability to move and shake things, business leaders, media, Hollywood, let alone politicians, say one thing and do another because they can get away with it as they flaunt their power before us. They allow wicked institutions to stay open while shutting down God's institution and rub our faces in it. It's unsurprising if more Christians are fretting over the evils of our age, although I know it's not as bad as it is in Africa and the Middle East. That's true, but it is relatively bad in our own lifetime, and our own lifespan. And it's still wrong. And injustice is an injustice. And in our case, they have been multiplied in the case of abortion for decades. Mass murder that no one wants to call a mass murder. A holocaust that no one wants to call a holocaust. The injustices upon the poor and the middle class alike, and even against other rich people. If you're the wrong kind of rich person, we found out, they're going to come after you. And they're going to do whatever they can to get you because they're angry and bitter. And we ought not to be angry and bitter, however, in response to this. To follow the better way that the psalmist gives us here in these first opening uh, verses, verses 1 through 11, as I said, I'll have other sermons covering the other verses that deal with wickedness versus the righteous. And here we see he opens up with one of the concerns that's pressing upon Christians often, historically, to be sure. It's not just our age, but every age, it seems, the wicked prosper. We could get away with these things. And what happens to the Christians, to the righteous? They are trampled upon and spat upon. Fret not. Verses 1 and 2, clustered with verses 8 and 9. I pointed out at the beginning, this psalm has two interesting characteristics. 
It's proverbial. You heard that one. It's a form of a proverb, instructional, and it's an acrostic. You're not going to know that because you don't know Hebrew. (laughs) Yeah, right? It's an arrangement of a poem by the alphabet. We have A is for apple, B is for boy, and you have a sentence. Boy runs away. The apple is good to eat. Or the old one we had in New England, and Adam's fall we send all. The New England primer. And so in this case, it's every verse, two verses or so, there's a new section of the acrostic, of the new Hebrew alphabet. And that itself suggests to you that it's there to instruct the audience. It makes sense that it would have been a teaching psalm. We often think of the psalms as songs of praise, to be sure, but it can have a, a double or triple function. You can sing these, and they can be instructional like a proverb. And it's in alphabetical order if you knew Hebrew. <laughs> Overall, there's about four or five different kinds of psalms, and this is one of, the, of those instructional types. Very interesting that way, and chock full of truth. This psalm has a proverbial flavor to it, as we shall see. Fret not, verses 1 through 2. Do not fret because of the evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. And uh, hopefully by now, I'm a broken record, and you remember about one of the natures of Hebraic poetry, is parallelisms. These are saying the same thing in two different ways. Or rather, it can say the same thing and then expand and, uh, upon the idea or say it differently here. So do not fret is parallel with, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. But what is fretting and what is fretting not? What is he speaking of and what is he not speaking about? We have a hint of this this morning in Bulliger's sermon, where he said you're supposed to have patience but not patience in the face of gross iniquities. Right? Obviously, you should push back against that. They're killing your family. <laughs> They're lying to your face, something like that. And there's a similar thing about concern. Sometimes we use the word worry, although often I think in my experience it's always a negative. Proper concern that God's will is not being done is not fretting. That's, another, that's an example of not fretting. You're concerned about God's glorious name and his name being dragged in the mud, he's being lied about, and you pray for that, that that would stop and his name would be magnified. That's not fretting. Not as such. When you say that you are worried about getting the bills paid, that often means, I know you may use those words, that often means, I think, you're concerned because something is wrong and your job is not doing well, you don't have enough money. These are proper, because if you're not concerned, how are you going to get things done? Right? So it's not proper and godly concern about doing your responsibility before God. And I know we use the word worry, but I think often we don't really mean it in the sense of fretting, of gnawing on the problem in a sinful way. We'll talk about that in a bit. So when we talk about being concerned, even when we use the language of, I'm worried about paying my bills... I don't think, and it doesn't have to mean that you sit around all day in worrisome days and get nothing done. But it's a matter of speaking. Fretting is undue or unnecessary worry or concern, or excessive concern, what we often use the word worry. I couldn't find a lot of synonyms. Um, 
that distract you from your responsibilities and leads your heart astray from God and into particular sins. In this case, the sin of envy, verse 1. Jealousy is that which you have that you don't want to lose. Envy is that what other people have that you want. And of course, he's saying, without saying it, you don't want their prosperity because they're wicked. (laughs) You don't want that kind of prosperity because it's rooted uh, in their wickedness and they will be judged accordingly. So it's not really a prosperity the way you think it is. And that's, in this case, fretting mixed with envy is a dangerous combination. The evildoers, we read in verse 2, shall soon be cut off like the grass and wither as the green herb. You don't want to go there. You don't want to be with them because you too will be cut down. But more precisely, they're going to be cut down. You're not going to be cut down. You're going to be protected. Yes, they are prospering. Yes, it seems like they're getting away with things, but they're not. We must cling to God's justice with the eyes of faith and realize like grass is mowed down suddenly and swiftly, like we do throughout the summer. I do weekly. Now it's every other week. So the wicked shall be mowed down if they repent not. Justice will happen. Verses 8 and 9, he brings it up again. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. Fret not, he says in verse 7, and because of him who prospers in his way, because of the, whom, of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. That is, he seems to be successful. He's getting away with these things. This is terrible. In this case, his concern about their fretting is it leads to anger. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. He says it two different ways. And do not fret, it only causes harm. Harm to yourself. Harm to your soul. Fretting may not only be coupled with envy. Here it's coupled, as we, I think we typically think of it, maybe just guys or myself, anger. With the injustices heaped upon injustices as they get away with these things and even prosper and have wicked schemes, and their schemes succeed, at least temporarily. And anger is a ready response. Obviously, again, he's not forbidding righteous indignation. We read about that elsewhere in the Bible. You kind of want that, last I checked, with uh, your police officer and your judge. I don't think you want them to be indifferent to truth. But the anger of hopeless frustration that causes harm to ourselves is another matter altogether. And that's what he's referring to here in this kind of fretting. The first kind was envious mixed with envy. This is mixed with anger, and it will harm you because it's a helpless frustration that boils up within us or an anger of bitterness like a worm that eats your soul. Why? Again, because the evildoers shall be cut off. Be patient, verse 7. Rest in the Lord and wait. His time is good enough. His timing is perfect. The evildoer, verse 9, shall be cut off. We read that before. But those who wait in the Lord shall inherit the earth. Judgment is real. God will execute it. It will come now to some degree, and it will always come when Jesus Christ shall return. The liars, the cheats, the thieves, those who destroy babies and mutilate children. We saw already that some semblance of justice has occurred when the Supreme Court overturned a law that was never a law. It was just a ruling. Laws are through our legislative branch. My daughter's learning about that right now. 
as all students are supposed to learn in seventh and eighth grade, not the Supreme Court. And they struck down their prior decision. And now, at the federal level, it's not supposed to be exercised. Although I don't doubt that it's going to happen eventually anyways. That's a, a little taste, brothers and sisters, of what God will do when justice shall flow down like waters upon the earth. We who rest and trust in God's righteous justice and righteous gospel, we shall inherit the earth. We shall live in the new heaven and new earth and meditate upon these trying times now, to be sure, but in light of eternity in which we who are meek, we who submit to God, that's the idea of humility and meekness, submitting to his providence, to his rule, we will inherit all things. All the things that were stolen will be brought back to the rightful owner, which is ultimately God, and then his people. Every right will be stood up and vindicated, and every wrong will be righted. The second point, trust instead. Don't fret. Stop that. It's bad. Look, they're going to get judged anyways. What you're doing doesn't accelerate the process at all. Be patient, as he says in verse 7. That will happen in God's time. Meanwhile, you're just hurting yourself. Trust instead. So here we have a replacement, right? One of the things that you have, one of the lessons of sanctification that we learn, it's unpacked by Paul, for example, New Testament, is replacement. Stop lying, tell the truth. Stop being lazy, work hard. Right there in Ephesians. Verses 3 to 7, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord, trust in him. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the lights. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently on him. The idea there of trust, verses 3 through 4. Of course, is predicated upon their belief in Jesus Christ, that is the Messiah to come, in God, to have faith in him. Faith has an element of trust in which we rely upon God and his promises. When he says it is so, it is so. When he says your sins are forgiven, I've wiped them away. Jesus has come to the repentant sinner, as we read this morning. We say, amen, it is so. And this trust, this trust in God, is supposed to lead to good works. Trust in the Lord, the covenant-keeping God, and do good, verse 3. Don't fret. It's harmful. Rather, do good instead. Trust in the Lord. He'll take care of it. And your responsibilities, in your little sphere of influence, do your duty. Take care of your home. Take care of your family. Take care of your church. Because we can't fix everything. And that's especially hard uh, when we have access to everything in America today. Now we're all concerned about things going on overseas. We have enough of our own problems in our own backyard. Do good. Do good especially to those near you and around you. Dwell in the land and feed on its faithfulness. Of course, we don't have a promised land of Israel like they did, but we still have the land that God has given us here in America uh, as his uh, people in particular. That is where he's placed us in his providence. And this trust in God should lead to good works in the land that we find ourselves in and feed upon God's faithfulness that is his long-suffering, his goodness towards us, and the many blessings that he's given us. He's faithful in giving us blessings, is the implication. Faithful in preserving his people in their land. And delight also in the Lord. 
to meditate upon his covenant faithfulness. To make God number one is the idea of delighting ourselves also in the Lord. The desire of our hearts shall be therefore given to us. And he doesn't mean by a blank check. He means the heart of the regenerate. What do the regenerate want? Do they want wickedness? No, they want righteousness. They delight in the goodness of God's creation, especially in him, who is the author of all goodness. And in the things that he will give us, he shall give you the desires of your heart. That will come to pass. You get some of it now. You wanted marriage, you got marriage. You wanted a house, you got a house. Got a car. Got a place to worship. All this is part of that plan. But it comes in spades in the new heaven and new earth. This is just kind of a down payment of sorts, a little hint at what's to come. So it's the desires, of course, of the regenerate heart. The glory of God ultimately is their desire. And God will give them that greatest of their desires. His name shall be glorified and magnified through justice when Jesus shall return. And we are therefore called to commit our ways to him, verses 5 through 6. Commit yourself to the Lord. Trust also in him. So you see the obvious parallelism there committing and trusting, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noon day. What shall he bring to pass? Verse 5. Trust in him. Commit yourself to the Lord. We understand what that means. He shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness. He shall bring forth justice as the noon day. That's what he's bringing forth. Common Old Testament themes, righteousness and justice, saying the same thing twice, more or less. They refer, on the flip side then, to the injustices of the wicked getting away with evil, as we read in the other verses. It's a reminder that we trust in God, He will vindicate our trust in Him. The world will see that our righteousness is in Christ, as it comes to light at the second coming of Christ, and that every injustice shall be made right. It will come to full light as the noonday sun in the brightness of his glory. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Confess what? Jesus Christ is Lord. What kind of a Lord? A righteous, holy, and just Lord. And they're getting exactly what they deserve. The righteous prosper. The psalmist is not Pollyannish. He, he's a realist. He sees exactly what's going on, how bad it is. I mean, in his day and age, David is dealing with people literally trying to kill him with a sword. He sees it's pretty bad. They're getting, the Philistines are prospering. They're getting away with it. Well, they took God's ark, as we saw in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, right? They're getting away with it. This is terrible. And David says, this is, okay, look, this is not how it's supposed to be. We're supposed to trust and believe that God will make every wrong right, and it shall be the case, and that's where we put our trust and reliance upon him. Rest in the Lord, verse 7, where we read, rest is in parallel with patience, rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Instead of thinking we have the power to change when we don't have the power to change things, we should wait on the one who has the power to change things. And that's why you have patience. Patience exercises, we saw this morning, that section of Bollinger, poetic section of sorts, is in the context of when you can't get things done. Yes, Pastor? 
Sure, but what about when you can't get things? Shouldn't you be patient? Of course you can. You're patient because you're going to go to work and it may take time for you to finally get your check or whatever the case is or right things get right, wrong things get right and at work because the boss will do it. You have a good boss. Yeah, that's patience. You've got to wait for that too. But here especially you see, I think, in which you can do nothing. Like we see in the precatory Psalms. You've got nowhere to go. God has closed all the doors and all the opportunities. You are powerless. Like David was powerless at times when he was running from Saul. And he says, wait. This is where God has put you. You have no choice. Don't fret. Don't gnaw yourself to the bone. But rather, trust and do what you can, no matter how limited it is. And fret not, as he says. And so that is mentioned three times in these verses. Fret not. The wicked men prosper when they should fail and be judged, but God will win at the end of the day. And so we wait. Patient meekness, verses 10 through 11. The third point. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Patience. He said it twice already in verse 7, and in verse 8. And of course it looks different. Patient does for different people in different contexts. It begins with the heart. Impatience, on the flip side, is not accepting the process that leads to the outcome that God tells us to. At home, you may have to wait while the parents decide if you can go to that movie. Poor teenager. When the kid complains before the outcome of the decision, he's being impatient. He has to wait for the parents to make the decision. Until that time, if he complains and he moans and cries, he's being impatient. So it's circumstantial in that case. He has to Understand, it takes time to execute the decision. And it's the same with God. In His timing, it will be executed in space and time, to be sure, and ultimately when Christ Jesus shall return. We have many things going on that we pray against and we are concerned about. The system fails us and we must wait. The Spirit has therefore told us to wait in His providence. But we have a sure promise upon which we can wait and rest. We don't have to be impatient. God has given us his word. And in verse 11 we read, But the meek shall inherit the earth. We've all heard that one before, haven't we? Matthew 5, 5, in the Sermon on the Mount. Christ Jesus, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek, someone who's lowly, humble, perhaps poor. Is it the way it's used sometimes? Because obviously... Financially, if you're poor, you're humbled that way. You don't have what you want or could have. Specifically, they are humble in contrast to the wicked, who are prideful, who don't think they need a Savior, as we saw this morning. They are righteous. They are not sinners. They don't need to repent. Meekness is knowing our place in God's providence. We are limited and cannot right every wrong. And thus, our place in God's providence is limited. And so we only have one choice but to carry on our duties and wait for the final outcome. Meanwhile, there are many things that weigh on our minds, to be sure. Lying politicians, corrupt businesses, mobs and riots and diseases and inflation. Then there's the long-standing injustices of wicked leaders and laymen who literally get away with murder. They steal, they cheat, they rob. Some in overt ways, but the worst do so in covert, clever ways. There are lies and more lies and even more lies piled atop of lies. We see it. We've witnessed it for years, even decades. The injustices and the prosperity of the wicked as they go after 
children now and families and tear them apart and destroy the middle class and the poor. They get promotions for it. They get lauded for it. They get good placement for it in society. It's enough to drive a godly man to anger. But God tells us it is not over. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, and ye shall be no more. Where is Rome? Where is Egypt? Where is Babylon? God has judged them, and they are in the dustbins of history. The wicked leaders we have in our lifetime will be forgotten in a hundred years. They have some prosperity like the grass does. It grows up in the middle of summer with good fertilizer, water, sun, and then it's mowed down in an instant. These nations are no more and shall never rise up again. God does bring judgment in time and space. That is in history. But the final judgment will be when Christ Jesus shall return. And we, brothers and sisters, we who submit to God in patience, shall inherit a new heaven and a new earth. When Christ comes, there shall be an abundance of peace, of truth, of justice forevermore. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and execute justice. Amen. Let us pray. Indeed, God Almighty, may we come to this psalm when we forget and when we fret to be reminded of where the wicked are going if they do not repent. Help us, God, to that end, to live a life of trust in you, as we read in verse 3, and continue to do good, even though we don't always prosper the way the wicked prosper. In your name we pray. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing Psalm 37.
Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance and give you peace. Thank you.